We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. James Acaster is a comedian who finds humour in the unlikeliest places. His highly acclaimed stand-up shows have tackled everything from car crashes to mental health and witness protection programmes. His latest book, Perfect Sand Whatever, describes finding refuge in the music of 2016 during a year in which his relationship broke up, he was ditched by his agent and, on the verge of a breakdown, sought counselling for the first time. If all that sounds a bit depressing, rest assured that Acaster manages to do what he always does, which is to distill the saddest parts of his life into the funniest jokes. He also recounts how he shat himself in a steakhouse and how he accidentally found comfort in the form of a cold lasagna, referring to the refrigerated discovery as one of the most iconic moments of 2017. Acaster's love of food is evident in his hit podcast, Off Menu, which he co-hosts with Ed Gamble and which is often above how to fail in the iTunes chart. So I'm actually raging with ill-concealed bitterness as I read this introduction, but hopefully you won't notice. He's recently launched another podcast series, Perfect Sounds, based on his contention that 2016 was the greatest year for popular music. Acaster has been nominated for the Edinburgh Comedy Award a record five consecutive times, and is the only British stand-up to have fronted a four-part Netflix special. The Evening Standard has called him the Jarvis Cocker of comedy. But however successful he is on paper, Acaster never fully seems to believe it of himself. You should try and live a good life, he writes in Perfect Sound Whatever. But you should also lay off yourself when you don't get everything perfect all the time. I personally wish I was better at acknowledging my mistakes without having to punish myself over and over. But it can take a long time to get to that point. James Acaster, welcome to How to Fail. Hello. Hello. So off the back of that quote, have you got there yet? Have you got to the point where you're easing up on yourself and you're not punishing yourself for mistakes over and over again? Well, first of all, 
thanks for reading the book. So I didn't think that anyone would ever read it and then uh, <laughs> interview me and be able to. So I thought, because it's a more personal book, I thought, oh, I'll just be able to say these things and I'll never, I'll never need to follow it up. But you got me there. I think I am getting better at it, but then I think that I'm getting better at it this year because weirdly with COVID and you know lockdown and everyone kind of like being put on pause for a bit and my usual job being put on pause, it means that I'm weirdly in some areas of my life anyway, less stressed. And I think I found constantly going around doing gigs to be pretty stressful. I'm finding that now that I'm feeling a bit more relaxed, I am a bit better at letting myself off the hook. Also, I, I don't feel like I'm making as many consistent mistakes because I think most comedy gigs I do, I've always got something that I didn't like about it, especially when I'm really tired and I'm doing a tour. I have some nights where I just come off and like, oh, I said so many things to that audience that they didn't deserve. I was really horrible to them. I'm really giving myself a hard time there. And obviously with no gigs this year, that's not happening at all. And I am pretty surprised, but also worried to discover how much more relaxed I am in general. I don't want to say my life's better because no one's life is better right now. Actually, some people's lives are better, aren't they? Some well, I imagine the thing with, with gigging is just the travel and the late nights is exhausting. So to be able to get out of that cycle and spend some time catching up on sleep, much as we wish there wasn't actually a global pandemic which had triggered that, but mm. I can imagine it, it does make you feel a bit more sorted. I mean, it certainly has for me. Because yeah. I'm actually a stand-up comedian. No, I'm not. But normally I travel quite a lot and it's been a real liberation not having anything in the diary. Yeah, I think as lucky as I feel to be able to do all those gigs and to have that as my job, I haven't stopped since I started doing the open mic circuit in 2008. And I've just been constantly gigging and trying to do as many gigs as possible since then. And definitely, I mean, last year it got a bit crazy in my tour. It was the longest and biggest tour I've ever done. And I was on stage for the longest amount of time. And when I said yes to all that, it was because, you know, I felt like what an opportunity to be able to do all this. And I didn't really factor in the fact that it would emotionally, physically and mentally <laughs> wear mm. me down. Following that up with a year where I'm able to be at home and work from home, the contrast is pretty huge. I always feel weird talking about that kind of side of COVID for me because not everyone is having that experience. And there's also a lot of things I would obviously sooner not have this pandemic happen to everybody than uh, my life be like this. But in terms of just giving myself a little bit of a break and not be so hard on myself, I've definitely found it easier this year. As I mentioned in the introduction, you mine your own life for a lot of your stand-up material. Do you feel that, that there is a kind of relentless self-awareness that comes from that? Yeah, I definitely feel more self-aware like since I started doing stand-up, just within the first week of doing stand-up, I became more self-aware than I was before because before I didn't have anyone bluntly feeding back to me what they thought of me. Whereas with stand-up, suddenly every night you were going on stage and discovering, oh, I'm not that funny. Like I think I genuinely before did stand-up thought I was quite a cool person and thought that like people thought I was cool. And then I started doing stand-up like, oh, I'm a no, people see me as a bit of a nerd and an outsider more than I thought I was. And they don't want me to come on and be this relatable, cool guy. Actually, that's even more awkward when I try and do that. And like, again, with that kind of like coming back to like giving yourself a break and trying not to give yourself a hard time, I definitely look back at so many of my interactions over the years 
I mean, since doing stand-up, but also definitely before, and how I was and who I thought I was and thinking everyone must have thought I was an absolute dickhead. Like, <laughs> I, I was going around thinking that I was a really cool, great guy that people wanted to be like, and actually I was just getting everything wrong. And I just had this misplaced confidence. So, yeah, stand-up has, for a while, it made me a lot more self-critical, maybe, and finding faults in myself because those routines were funnier. And there's certain aspects that have improved, but also it means that every time I do notice I've done something that might sound stupid or whatever, I don't get it out of my head for a long time. I am a bit too self-aware in that regard. There's tiny things I've done, you know, years ago in social interactions that I still think of now and go, oh man, that person must hate me. And I don't think I had that before I did stand-up. One of the reasons that I loved your book, which I did actually read, well done me, is because... It is a man being really open about the emotional cost of relationship breakups. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you often read that. And I really admire that about your work. How difficult was it for you to confront that? How easy was it for you to make the decision to write about it? I didn't take it lightly. I wanted to write a book about music because I was so excited about all these albums that I discovered from this one year, but because it's such an odd music project to do, to tell everyone, like, you bought hundreds of albums from 2016 and you now think it's the greatest year for music of all time, you can't say that and then not put it in context. Like, they have to know the full story. So I was like, well, if I do that, I do have to explain to them why. So I'm going to have to talk about my personal life. Luckily, with a book, you can just write whatever you like and then you can read it back and see how you feel about it and choose what goes in and what doesn't. So I think in the early stages of it, I just decided, well, I'll just write everything and I can always take out the stuff that makes me feel uncomfortable or that feels irrelevant. And quite early on, I decided that no one wants to hear the kind of personal gritty details about a breakup and someone trying to make out like one of you was in the right, one of you was in the wrong and all that tabloid dramery stuff that actually doesn't help anyone to hear that about someone else's relationship. What is helpful is just your own story and being like, this is how I felt when this happened. And this is how I coped with it or didn't cope with it at various times. And the more that I wrote about that side of things, because in the book, my ex-girlfriend, she's not named, but she's also, I don't talk about anything specifically that she did, anything that happened between us. It's not relevant. Mm. You refer to her as Becky with the good hair, which is a reference to one of 2016's seminal albums, Beyonce's Lemonade. So I massively appreciated that as well. (laughs) Tell us about shitting yourself in a steakhouse, because that's what we really want to hear about. (laughs) Yeah, it was just one of those things where like, not really ever spoke about that sort of stuff in my (laughs) stand-up before. I've mainly done like whimsical stand-up and people would never expect me to do a story like that necessarily but I was very grateful to have that story going into this book because a lot of the book is about suicidal thoughts and about depression and anxiety so it was nice to have a story where you shit yourself in a steakhouse at one point it was just an unfortunate series of events it was my first time or maybe my second time actually in LA but it was my first time on American television I was very excited about it And the night before, I did a gig where I tried out the material that I was going to do on TV the next day, and the gig went really well. So to celebrate, I was just like drinking with the other comics and went and got a chicken quesadilla from the Mexican food truck outside. And that 
gave me food poisoning. I woke up in the middle of the night very poorly. Then had to go to the TV show the next day, trying to style that out like I didn't have food poisoning. Also, I was told that the audience at that gig are the easiest audience ever. They weren't on that particular day. I got very, very unlucky. And I had to go out to a very quiet audience and just do my set while trying not to shit myself. And then afterwards, my agent at the time wanted to go to a steakhouse to celebrate the awful gig. And I went there, went to the toilet. Up to that point, I didn't I didn't need a shit anymore. So I was like, oh, I think I'm okay. But while I was urinating, my body was like, you do need a shit and it's going to happen right now. Because I had makeup wipes and stuff in my bag because I was doing a TV show. I was able to weirdly clean myself up. I had a change of clothes as well. So I was able to clean myself up better than most people in that situation would be able to. But then go out to my agent and ask that we now go home because this has happened to me. He'd been looking forward to this steakhouse for ages. So somehow, and I would never do this now, and this is probably a better answer to your first question of have I stopped giving myself a hard time for stuff? Because nowadays I would just go, no, I'm not staying here and having a steak dinner with you. I've just shit myself. I'm going back to my Airbnb and you can have a meal on your own, but I'm not doing this. But at the time, I didn't have that in me. I was just like, oh, okay. He's, you know, because I was like, oh, he's really looked forward to coming here. So I should really stay. And just sat there. And I couldn't eat anything because my you know, insides were a mess. So I just sat and watched him eat a steak dinner while mine went cold. And then I was in bed for a week after that with food poisoning. I mean, the agents that I've got now would 100% never do that to me. Like if I came out and went, I'll just shit myself. They go, okay, well, we're all going home now. And we're going to cancel this meal. Because, of course, we're not going to... Or they'd at least go, well, we'll put you in a cab home. Yeah. If you don't mind, we're going to stay here and have the meal. And even then, you'd be like, that's a bit off, but fair enough. But, uh, yeah, I, I think... I mean, to uh, be fair, like, I wouldn't want to eat my steak opposite someone who just shat themselves. You would think so. Um, it's off-putting. <laughs> yeah, I, I think for some reason for him, being told... I'd, I said, look, I've cleaned myself up as best I can, but I'd like to go home. He's like, well, he's cleaned himself up. I'm having this steak. <laughs> I think he'd been looking forward to it so much that nothing could ruin it for him. Like, he'd been thinking about it for a very long time of having this steak dinner. He was just going to have it no matter what. I mean, we are laughing about it now because you are very funny in how you tell stories, which is lucky for you given what you do professionally. But <laughs> I think it does highlight that story, like how low things had got when actually, on the one hand, there was this career high of performing on Conan O'Brien. And on the other hand, you're being really let down by your agent in a foreign city, food poisoning, and you don't feel able to stand up for yourself and to voice what you need. And you talk, as you mentioned there in the book, about depression and suicidal thoughts and going into therapy for the first time. And again, I want to salute you for that because... Not only do, I think, men find that harder, but particularly male stand-up comedians, I imagine. And I just wanted to ask you about that, about how helpful you have found therapy in your life. Very. And I had, you know, I had a massive speed bump with it at the end of 2017. But I've got a new therapist now and they're fantastic. And I've been doing Zoom sessions during lockdown. To begin with, it was just very useful for Again, what we're talking about, the whole kind of not being as hard on myself. I, I didn't even realise that was a thing that I did until I went to therapy. I kind of went to therapy because I blamed the whole breakup on myself. Found a million little reasons, little million things I'd said or done over the years to convince myself this is all my fault. Even though no one was telling me that 
but I was convinced that I was just not worth being with and I'd done all these awful things or whatever. And then when I went to therapy, well, I went because I was having suicidal thoughts and that scared me. And I didn't want to have suicidal thoughts. I didn't want to kill myself because I have friends and family, especially my family or nephews and stuff. And I, I don't want to do that to them. I didn't really know what I wanted out of it, first of all. I, I didn't want to have suicidal thoughts anymore. It's like I wanted to stop being a dickhead almost. I deliberately chose a female therapist as well because I thought a male therapist would let me off the hook if I went and told them like what an awful boyfriend I was. And what was weird was like sitting down and actually talking to someone who you know doesn't know you, isn't being judgmental, but also you can't offend them. They don't have a personal stake in what you're saying. And just telling them stuff which in your head was really bad and then you hear yourself say it out loud and you're like, oh no, that was just like an argument that couples have. And mm. Actually, that wasn't that bad and that, that was okay. Or yeah, And there's certain things which I saw in a completely different light when talking about it in therapy and then gradually kind of looking at, oh, actually my main problem is I'm so self-critical and hard on myself that I've driven myself to a, a nervous breakdown, essentially. And I, I, I've, I've kind of put so much on myself that no one else was putting on me that I've kind of fallen apart and that's weirdly what's got me here. Although, actually, I won't say that that's what got me in therapy because I don't want people to think that you have to get to this point and then go to yeah. therapy. Anyone can go at any point and it's just a healthy thing to do, just like going to the gym is healthy. And I, and I know some of people listen go, well, I don't go to the gym, but like we all know we should. <laughs> so mm. at least there's that with the gym. It's that even if you don't go, you know you should go. So there's that step with therapy that we need to take of going like, Okay, I don't go, but I should, no matter what, really. So that was really helpful to begin with, not blaming myself for everything anymore, even if I had done something wrong in my life, like not repeatedly beating myself up for it. The speed bump you refer to, just for people who haven't read the book, is that you found yourself being sort of lightly stalked by your former therapist, which is mm. a very unfortunate turn of events, and that's why you had to find a new one. Yes. But why do you think you were so self-critical. Do you think you were born that way? There's like a load of different things. I mean, I was raised Christian, which sounds like it's putting the blame on my parents, which it 100% isn't because they have always been on the very progressive and liberal and kind side of Christianity where it's, I was going to say where it's more focused on forgiveness, but even then when it's more focused on forgiveness, it's still mm. focused on you've done something wrong. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't growing up in a Christian household where it was like focusing on sins and you're a sinner and all this kind of stuff. But I still went to a C of E school and we went to church and um, I even went to like, you know, Cubs and Scouts, which were very Christian when I went to those things. So my life was full of a lot of readings from the Bible and sermons and assemblies about the Bible and all stuff like that. And a lot of that was based on, especially my primary school, I remember there was a lot at primary school of assemblies which were assemblies about things you shouldn't do, even if it was like smoking or something. So I've never smoked, to this day I've never even smoked a cigarette, even had a, whatever they call it, a drag or a toke, I don't know what the cool kids are saying. But like, <laughs> I haven't done any of that because I remember the don't smoke assembly from school scaring the shit out of me. And all of that, you know, don't do this because it's bad and don't, and you know, I remember getting in trouble at school for um, swearing and being absolutely in tears when my mum got told about it, but my mum not being that angry at me. Yeah, I just told from an early age and most of the things that I was going to that, you know, if you do something wrong, that is bad. And I wasn't mm. being told 
as much, but it's okay. You can be forgiven or we're all human. We're going to do these things. There definitely wasn't a sense of we're all just people and we're going to make mistakes. It was, you shouldn't do this. So there was that. And then over the years as well, I guess like with certain, it's not like Britain in general, also like Kettering where I grew up is full of critical people. Apologies in a way to anyone listening from Kettering, but you also, if you're from Kettering, you know that I'm right, that there's loads of nice people in Kettering. But if you go to school in Kettering and you grow up around there and go to the pubs and whatever, my experience growing up, it wasn't the most supportive town to grow up in. There were supportive people there and there were supportive places you could go, youth clubs and whatnot. But there's a lot of like, you shouldn't think you're anything great and don't think you're good. Anyone was successful, they'd get chopped down pretty quickly. We had a, a metal band in Kettering do well. And as soon as they did well, everyone was like, they're shit, they're, they're, they're sellouts and they're not good anymore. So there wasn't people turning to each other and going, good on you, that's brilliant what you've just done, that's great. It was more like, oh, what you think you're good, do you? Because well, you've just done that, you're not good actually. So you're not allowed to feel proud of yourself, you're not allowed to pat yourself on the back. You should be more self-deprecating and self-critical. And there was that as well, which I think England in general is like. Most places in England are like that. And there are some positive places, you've got Brighton and Bristol, but everywhere else is pretty... <laughs> pretty negative apologies to all the places that i've been to that are really positive i'm sure there's loads of places that are positive that oh my god up. you're hating yourself for this as you're saying it <laughs> oh yeah well, well exactly I mean, you say this stuff especially nowadays with like that doesn't help as well that now we've got the internet mm. where if someone slips up we could all do a tweet and say that they're an arsehole for saying this so as soon as i said that then in my head what i'm thinking is someone who lives in somerset is going to tweet oh yeah thanks very much mate like we're a bunch of grumpy people we're not actually so you might get that right so like in my head that's always what's going to happen so yeah that's it's all that it's a mixture of a whole bunch of things my final question before we get on to your failures is mm -hmm. do you think that having gone through breakups makes you better or wiser and enables you to have a more successful relationship now i don't know i mean i'm 100 percent in the best relationship i've ever been in but i don't know if that's because i've been in failed ones or just because i mean this one just feels and from the start just felt completely different to anything else it was like i felt like i could just be myself i didn't have mm. to put any effort into things constantly you know like and when I say that, I don't mean, you know, I'm not doing anything nice, but like, it's that when you do put effort in, it doesn't feel like effort because you just want to do it. You just want to do a nice thing for that person because, yeah, it just feels like the, <laughs> there's something you want to do rather than a stress of, if I don't do something nice for them, we might fall out soon because <laughs> we're having a tough yeah. time. I think definitely being in other relationships that haven't been right for me and also haven't been right for the other person I was in a relationship with has just given me perspective. If this relationship I'm in now had been the first relationship I was ever in, I might just assume that all relationships are like this and take it for granted a bit more. And every day that I've been with my girlfriend now, I've just felt incredibly grateful and lucky. I might not have if it was the first person I met and I, and I didn't have other relationships to compare it to. I mean, if we're talking about self-criticism, this is the only relationship I've been in where I'm not doing that to myself. And I think in all other relationships I've been in, I've been constantly self-criticising and self-criticising and criticising them in my head. <laughs> you know, yeah. and being like, oh, I don't like that. I don't like that. And like, oh, that's not great. And then looking at the relationship and criticising the relationship and looking at myself and going, oh, I'm doing this, this and this, this isn't good. And this is the first relationship where not only am I not doing that, but also it's not even an effort to not do that. It's just, I just feel like I can just be me and 
it definitely has made me more certain that this is the right relationship for me. But yeah, I mean, you know, I'd rather have just had one failed relationship <laughs> to, to learn that lesson. That's so lovely. I mean, being yourself in a relationship, it is the thing and it's so underrated and I totally hear you. So I'm glad you found that. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Let's get on to your failures. So the first one is relentlessly calling a heckler a paedophile during your first year as a stand-up. So what happened there? Was it one heckler at one gig or did he keep coming back or she? <laughs> it was one heckler at one gig. I mean, when I started stand-up, I mean, when anyone starts stand-up, they don't know what they're doing. And you're just someone who you have an interest in stand-up comedy or you are the funny one in your friendship group, whatever it is that makes you want to do stand-up comedy and try it out. And every single routine that you write and everything that you say off the cuff is an experiment and you don't know what works and what doesn't. And you're figuring out who you are on stage and what works for you. And I'd seen the comedian Daniel Kitson, who is, you know, for people who don't know him, A, he'll be glad that you don't know him, but also by stand-ups, he's regarded very highly. And he was, and still is, one of my favourite comedians and I'd gone to see him. And I'd seen him deal with a heckler by calling him a paedophile. And it was hilarious. And I hadn't done stand-up long enough yet to know that what works for one comic doesn't necessarily mm. work for all comics. And that also what works in one situation doesn't work in every single situation, even if you're that comedian. Like it worked because of what was going on in the room and all that. And he was somehow able to pull that off. So I did this gig in Hitchin. And it was a very nice gig. And it was all like all the locals and everyone kind of knew each other in the crowd and stuff. And a guy turned up who I later learned his nickname is Mad John locally and he's got a bit of a reputation he knows he has and he, he showed up during my set as well so I was like the third act on of six or something like that but like he turned up during my set and immediately started shouting out without knowing what I'd been talking about and just immediately I was like you're a paedophile mate without 
There wasn't any context for it. Like there had been at the Kitson show. I'm sure something had happened at the Kitson show, which meant it made sense to call him that. I just called him it immediately. And it got a laugh, probably just because it, it was so out of nowhere. But then as a new comic, I didn't understand. Every time he shouted out, I called him a paedophile. Now, this is going to sound like one of those stand-up comedy stories where people are like really just, they're making out something failed and actually they're just trying to talk about a success because mm. the gig did go well for me calling him a paedophile over and over again. However, to me, that doesn't paint a success in comedy. An audience laughing doesn't necessarily mean you're doing the right thing. In fact, a lot of the time, it's you're kind of like taking whatever power you have through being on stage and you could be misusing it a bit and the laughs don't mean you're doing something right. And after that gig, I felt so bad about it. And all I was doing was talking to my friend David Trent, who was on the bill as well, and saying to him, I really wish I hadn't done that because that man had mental health issues, definitely. And when I spoke to the people who knew him afterwards, I was like, okay. And I was just like, that was not a good way of dealing with that. I never did anything like that again because I just felt, you kind of look at yourself and go, oh, were the laughs that important to you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you had to get them that much that you would just happily <laughs> destroy this guy. It's not like afterwards he came up to me laughing and going, nice one, that was brilliant. He was a bit miffed because fair enough to him, it was like, what? Why am I yeah. being called that? Look, I'd like to say that I've never made those mistakes again. I've never called someone a paedophile relentlessly again, but like I've definitely gone too hard on audience members since, got sidetracked with something that sometimes the rest of the room doesn't even care about, especially on my most recent tour. Every now and again, the reason why I continually make that mistake is because every now and again it works mm. in a way that's actually good and that I don't come away feeling bad from. Like every now and again it works in a way that I'm like, oh, that that did make the gig better taking that risk and actually being negative about the gig made the gig better and no one was upset and that was good. So then I continually roll the dice on gigs where that doesn't work and then I come away feeling like oh, I gave them a really bad show there because I. any time a gig feels middling, and like it's going to be forgettable, I panic. And I want to make the gig memorable. I don't want people going away just going, oh yeah, that was all right. And so in the moment, I try and make it an event and take a risk. And often, because I'm tired on tour or grumpy or whatever, you go with whatever your true feelings are, your authentic feelings are, because that's kind of in the moment feels like your best chance of making the gig good. And often, that just makes it worse. And you end up bumming everyone out and making them think that they've been a bad audience and you don't like the gig and the gig's been shit. I think it's such an interesting failure to have chosen because it highlights the capacity of comedy to be cruel. And I think what's very interesting about you is that you've spoken in the past about how there's a responsibility both to acknowledge your privilege, but also to realise that times change and... I know that comedians are constantly asked about this. Like, is there any joke too offensive to make? Mm. And you're very interesting on that. So what is your position on that? Well, often what we get asked, because it's interesting how you phrased it, because people don't usually phrase it like that. People don't usually phrase it, is there any joke that's too offensive to make? People cleverly phrase it, is there any topic that's out of bounds? Which Are you saying I'm not clever? <laughs> Stop heckling yeah. me, James. Yeah, sorry, mate. You, you're an idiot and a paedophile. Um, <laughs> sneakily, I should have said. They sneakily <laughs> phrase it like that. Because your question's a better question. But their question means there's a the kind of get out there. Because 
I don't think there is any topic that is out of bounds because it just depends how you deal with that topic. And all these freedom of speech people, and look, I believe in free speech. I'm pretty sure everyone does. Like, I, I actually don't know anyone who doesn't believe in free speech. I've never met anyone who doesn't believe in free speech. But people who use free speech as an excuse to say awful things, and often, like, they're the ones who scream freedom of speech when, when people try and, like, disagree with a joke they've made. They will make out like it's topics, oh, we can't talk about that, or we're not allowed to talk about rape, or we're not allowed to talk about paedophilia, or race, if you're white, or whatever it is. And it's like, no, you can absolutely talk about all the, those things. But all of those things are weighty, much more weightier subjects, depending on who, you know, well, actually, whoever you are, they're weightier subjects. But like, if you're on the more privileged end of the scale when it comes to that subject, then there's even more weight behind it because the routine is different when you talk about it. And it's not just a joke is a joke. Like, say if you're a man and you make a joke about rape and the joke about rape is very much either at the expense of the victim or it's quite flippant about it. It's just having a laugh about that subject and trivialising it and making it seem like it's not yeah, it's not important. It doesn't matter. And I know that men get raped also and men can be sexually assaulted, but like a lot of the time, the jokes that men do about it are at the expense of women. And they'll kind of get wound up Actually, I'm jumping around all over the place now, but it helps to have a more specific example. Mm. Bill Burr has a routine where he says about, there's a waitress at a cafe and she wrote on the chalkboard outside, or was at a pub, and she wrote on the chalkboard outside, we like our beer, like we like our violence, domestic. And that's the joke she puts on the chalkboard outside. And he tells his story and says that she then got lost her job over it because everyone on social media kicked off about this joke now whether you think she should lose her job or not is a different discussion but the main thing he defends is the joke his point is it's a good solid joke you take any word out of that joke and the joke doesn't work anymore and no one's going to see that joke and then go ah oh, that's a good idea and then go home and beat their wife up and that's his whole point about it mm. and the weird stance people tend to take on it is that and no one is saying that no one's saying that if you're in the audience and you hear a joke about domestic violence, you're then going to start doing domestic violence when you never did it before. That's not the case. What it does do, that kind of joke, and the comic never thinks of this, there might be someone in the audience who has experienced domestic violence, who themselves have been on the receiving end of that at home or who have witnessed it maybe with their parents. And those jokes aren't going to be funny to that person. In fact, they're going to be quite the opposite and disturbing and quite horrible and going to make them feel very alone and isolated when everyone around them is laughing at that joke and your failure to acknowledge that that person exists and it means immediately just thinking about people who aren't that person so immediately bill burr thinks of the person doing the violence and not the victim of it yeah that's where his mind goes to immediately and so the disregard for the person who is the victim highlights the problem as well we don't see those people as mattering or as individuals, hence why you're making that joke. Also, it's not just the people doing the violence who are completely responsible for it. As a society, mm. us not giving those things the weight that they deserve and us not acknowledging that they're bad and us being flippant about them and just treating them like they don't matter and that it's just something we can joke about and actually take no positive action in terms of combating it, but we can all make jokes and have a laugh. 
that is a problem. And that kind of like, let's just make jokes about gay people, let's make jokes about trans people. It's just making it that these things don't matter and those people don't matter. And we can all just like enable. And when people go, well, I'm not transphobic, I'm not homophobic, I'm not racist. It's like, but you're enabling these people. You're allowing them to continue. The people who are racist and transphobic and homophobic, you're kind of like backing up that culture that allows them to feel emboldened enough to do what they do all the time. So for me, getting a laugh out of an audience is not as important as those things being eradicated and those things being combated. And I'm sure that any kind of like edgy comic who defends those kind of jokes could listen to this and think it's a bunch of bollocks. But like nothing's going to change their minds anyway. They seem pretty stubborn on that front. And if any of those people are listening, I'd prompt them to ask themselves why they care about that. Why are they choosing that side of things and sticking to it so aggressively instead of considering the opposing point of view and why is your main hill that you want to die and immediately is defending the comedian making that joke who by the way is receiving no repercussions mostly like, like people hold up like very rare cases where things have gone to court these comedians who are releasing these trailers all the time for their netflix specials or whatever being like no one dares say anything anymore this guy's gonna say it all it's like You've got a Netflix special and you're saying all of this on Netflix and nothing's going to happen to you and you're a multimillionaire. What are you talking about? You've literally made millions from saying this kind of shit. The world is not against you, but the world is against all these people that you're making the jokes about. People are dying. I can't with good conscience go out and just make a flippant joke about a stereotype and encourage the same old tired ignorance about minorities and people who are experiencing bad shit happening to them. And just like feel that I'm justified in doing that. I, I, I don't really see. I don't. Know. I, I have to say, I think that's an amazing answer. I really do, and thank you for putting it so eloquently. This isn't one of your failures, but I'm always very interested when I discover it about someone, and I know that listeners like talking about it. Is that you dropped out of school before sixth form? Uh, during sixth form. Yeah. During sixth form, and your dad was a teacher at that same school, wasn't he? Before I was there, yeah. Oh, okay. Almost got that right. <laughs> no, that's more than most people ever know. That's good. So why did you drop out? I mean, I would have dropped out earlier, but my dad had made a deal with me to do one year of sick form before I left. And we're talking about this recently, actually. He thought he'd got me. Because like, I basically, at the end of GCSEs, I just said, I'm, right, I'm just going to form a band and that's what I'm going to do now. And I'm going to try and be in a band. And my dad was like, just do one year of sick form. And if you don't you know, get anything out of it, don't like it, you can stop after one year. And that was like the deal. And I made the deal with him and I did one year and then I dropped out. And he says that he thought he'd got me that I was just going to go, well, I may as well do a second year because I've got to the end of the first. So I may as well just get my A-levels. But the reason why is because I don't think I was obsessed with death, but like I was definitely one of those people who was like, well, I'm going to die one day. Like this life isn't forever. And at that age, I was like, I didn't see any point not just going for my dreams at that point. I was like in a position where I could try and do that. You know, I could try and be in a band. I was 17 when I left sick form. And so I was like, you know, that's a great age to start <laughs> trying to do that kind of stuff. I'd already been playing drums since I was 13. If I fail at this, then I'll probably be quite young by the time I've accepted that. So I can always do something else again. And I'd say it's hate the str- Told me that's too strong a word, but yeah, I, I, I did pretty much hate school. Like I, I didn't like it. I didn't like the environment. I had a teacher who bullied me in my first year of year seven. She was very nasty, and also that whole thing with like 
I'm still in touch with one person from school and everything else I just found exhausting. The whole constantly trying to like be liked by people, be cool enough to be in with that group, be cool enough to not have that lot bully you. It was like a constant thing in my head of like just trying to keep on everyone's good side because in my school, if you did slip into the kind of like outsider weirdo kind of thing, you were excluded by a lot of people and I was terrified of being bullied for whatever reason. So I I was looking back, I was very stressed all the way through school of like trying to keep a certain position in my year group or in my school where like I wasn't getting shit from people all the time. I didn't enjoy most of the lessons and all I wanted to do was creative stuff all the way through school. I, I loved music. I loved drama. I loved art class. I even liked dance when we did that, actually. Those were like the ones that I enjoyed. I didn't enjoy the rest of it. I enjoyed English when we were writing stories. And when everyone was like getting ready to go to university, also like I was one of the teenagers who I didn't like drinking at that point. I just hated it. Me and my friends had started going to the pub and I was always having Cokes and they were all getting hammered and I didn't see the appeal whatsoever. So going to university held zero appeal to me because I was like, well, what I want to do doesn't require qualifications being in a band. And I had like drum teachers and stuff at the time say to me, well, what if you don't make it in a band? You might want to be a session musician and you need qualifications for that. I was like, but I don't want to be a session musician. So I'm not going to give myself a qualification and work hard on my plan B. And then I won't be able to achieve my plan A. And then I'm doing Mm. plan B and then I die. So I'm not doing that. I want to be a musician so I don't need qualifications. I don't care about getting pissed and getting drunk with people. So university doesn't hold that extra appeal for me there. I don't really like hanging out with a new group of people and stuff like that. So I don't want to suddenly live in a house with them. Like there was just nothing there really apart from the prospect of traveling to a different city and living in a different city that appealed to me. So I was just like, I don't see why I would do this. I I want to be in a band. I want to make music and release classic albums. So I'm going to start doing that as soon as possible. I went to a sixth form college after dropping out of my sixth form and did a two-year BTEC in music practice, which isn't really a proper course. But I didn't really get a very good grade at the end of that because he had to form a band for the course. And towards the end, I thought, well, a better use of my time right now is booking my band loads of gigs and trying to get us a demo and stuff like that rather than doing this coursework and getting this qualification that I'm never going to use anyway and so there's a whole bunch of things on that course I didn't get good grades on because I was too busy actually trying to be in a band and working on actually doing the thing yeah yeah, working on what the plan was and although being in a band didn't work out you Mm. have become a phenomenally successful comedian have you ever regretted dropping out of school No, that's not me saying that everyone should do what I did, but I I hope that's clear to people. But like, I think I was very lucky to know what I wanted to do with my life early on. And I was lucky to be so single-minded and driven about it. I mean, there's definitely that thing of like acknowledging privilege and stuff. We moved into a nicer house and we were considered middle class at that point. There wasn't many major risks in going for a band. The worst thing that could have happened is that I would be skinned and my parents would let me move back in with them. So I was lucky that I had all that and that I was able to just roll the dice and go for my number one dream. And that when that didn't work out, because I hadn't given myself a plan B or a backup, I started doing stand-up because I'd done a couple of stand-up gigs already just for fun and I'd enjoyed them. I didn't have any ideas when the band stopped. So because I didn't want to sit around moping at home and complaining that I wasn't in a band anymore... I thought, well, I can get out the house and do comedy gigs. And I booked myself gigs all over the country because 
I did enjoy with the band traveling somewhere to do a gig. Our gigs were always a disaster as a band. We would you know, drive to Blackpool and play to seven people and drive home and none of them would listen to us. But I liked the journey. I liked, oh, I'm going out of Kettering, we're going to Blackpool today. And that was exciting to me. And so I thought I can sustain that by doing the open mic circuit around England and doing stand-up. And I was 23 and someone told me early on, if you're not making a living out of stand-up after three years, you should quit. And I was like, great, I'll be 26, that's nothing. So I just like threw myself into it, but not thinking at the time it was going to be my career. But I wouldn't have done that and had that as a plan B if I hadn't given myself a plan B at all and was then forced to just do whatever the second most enjoyable thing I'd been doing was. I think it's so important for people to realise that there are so many different paths to get somewhere and that it doesn't have to be the traditional route of school and A-levels and university. So thank you for that. But your second failure is related to music, which is trying to explain to people why I couldn't play the songs they requested at my friend's wedding when I DJed, which does sound pretty stressful, to be fair. Oh, it was bad. And also, like, it's not even just that wedding. It's like a load of different DJ experiences. And I think there's some metaphor here for life, I think, and something that I haven't yet learned. So I love music. I love introducing people to new music. And so my first ever DJ experience was when I was like still in a band. So I was probably 18, 19. And I did a guest spot at the Prince of Wales in Kettering. And it was an hour. And they just let you do an unpaid hour-long DJ set. And it was usually at like eight o'clock. So it's not jumping yet. And I just thought, what a great opportunity to play people all these amazing songs they've never heard. And introduce people to new music. I'll be like John Peel. And the amount of people who were just constantly coming up to me going, can you play something we know, please? And they got progressively more angry with me. with being like, mate, if the next song you play isn't Oasis, I'm going to fucking kick off. And I mean, <laughs> knowing that I was about to play some math metal band that they'd never heard of. I remember that ended with a group of people chanting wanker at me in time with the song <laughs> I was playing. And you know that goes back as well to the encouragement of the Kettering public. That's what I was growing up with. Was I'm there trying to connect with them and trying to, and trying to do something positive and they're literally calling me a wanker over and over again and I'm not sure if I'm going to get out the pub alive. And I learned from that to play songs that people know. And so I put a playlist together over the years that was like all big hits that everyone would dance to. I DJed at a friend's house party and it went well with that playlist. And then... I DJed a friend's wedding and that also went really well. The film was a comic and it was just so much fun. And it was in 2017, a year where I wasn't having a good time. And then DJing at that wedding, I just felt amazing and everyone was dancing and I just felt so happy because I'd felt so isolated and on my own all year. And then suddenly to feel connected to a room full of people in a, just a purely positive way and in a way where your ego wasn't as involved as with stand-up, you know? You haven't written the songs. You are mm. just playing them. So you feel a bit like, you know, you're, you're doing this and you're choosing the songs, but you're not there going like, yeah, I've written a pretty great song. So like, there's this, you're sharing something with people more than being the recipient of all the credit. I just loved it. I, like, I want to DJ loads. And so I kind of offered to a couple of friends that I knew who were getting married. I just put my name down to do two DJ sets at weddings that were coming up. And the first one there was no Wi-Fi in the venue. So I had my iPod, which already had this playlist that I'd made for them on my iPod. And they had a laptop, which already had a playlist that they had chosen, the bride and groom, that they wanted. So all I could do, all I was capable of doing, was going back and forth between these two. Now, I'd like to add, 
the dance floor was full all night. These are all bangers. Nothing I'm playing is like obscure. There's no ego involved in this either. I'm just completely giving them the songs everyone wants at weddings. But at the first wedding I'd done, most people were performers. And performers don't heckle each other. And performers don't bother each other during something. You know, so no one was coming up to me at my comedy friend's wedding and requesting songs because mm-hmm. most of them have been on stage or they just wanted to have a good time and they weren't going to give anyone any hassle. And so at this one, I'm DJing and it's going well. And a guy who's pretty drunk at that point just comes up to me. And also like he walks, I'm on a stage, but he just walks onto the stage and right up to me. So there's that thing of like, he's not staying the other side of the TJ booth and speaking to me like that from the safe distance. He's just coming up to me and just says, have you got any queen? And I was like, oh no, sorry, I don't have any queen. They said, well, get on the internet and find it. I was like, I don't have Wi-Fi in the building. So all I can do is I've got my iPod here and it's got songs on it and their playlist is the Brian and Groom's playlist. So all I can do is go back and forth between the two and Queen aren't on either one of them, I'm afraid. And he was like, it's a yes or no question, mate. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay, well, no. He went, why not? And then I had to explain it again. And then he went, oh, so I'm like, I'm not the biggest cunt in the world for asking, am I? (laughs) And you're thinking, well, I didn't think you were, but now you've said that. (laughs) Like, it doesn't feel like you're a great guy. And then I was trying to be like, no, I'm I'm just telling you. I said, I'm sorry, I don't really know what's going on here. And he was like, what, you don't know what's going on? What, I'm asking you for a song. You're just like completely mugging me off. I was like, no, I'm not. And I was trying to explain, and then he was in my face, and really, and then someone had to come and get him and drag him away. And then because of that, I was pretty shaken up. <laughs> and because I'd been, he's squaring up to me. I was like, oh, I'm going to get, I'm about to get beaten up. And then like he goes away and complains to his friends, and you can see him. So you can see the group who are now looking over at you. And now in my head, I'm like, oh, they're going to chant wanker at me. It's like a, a whole thing now. It's going to happen again. And one of his friends comes up. She requests a song. Brian Adams or something and she's half smiling as well because she's like I'm gonna go and see if he's a dickhead again and I looked on both playlists no Brian Adams explained the exact same thing to her and she just looks over her shoulder at her friends and is like shakes her head and they're like this guy's a fucking man. and then she's like right okay so you're not gonna play it then you're just not gonna play what I've asked for at a wedding <laughs> and I was like I know it's a wedding but like, I haven't got this stuff. she goes away then a friend comes up to me, which you think, this is fine. And she's like, are you okay? You don't look like you're enjoying yourself. I was like, yeah, I've just had this guy shout in my face. And he was like, saying, oh, I'm the biggest cunt in the world and all this. Like, it was really aggressive. And this group are kind of like looking over at me now. And I just feel a bit uneasy. She's like, well, do you want to cheer up? It is a wedding, James. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I just need a second like someone just confronted me so I just need a second and then she starts laughing and going you're being so stupid just tell them you're not going to play the song I was like well I did and that made them angrier she's like well just tell them no requests I was like I don't think that'll go down better if I just say to them no requests I think I'm in big (laughs) trouble also what I hadn't taken into account and I talked to people afterwards and some people were like everyone at that wedding well a lot of people at the wedding knew who you were you're a local comedian who's now on TV and they get to fuck with you. Like, and they get to go over to, and so you not playing their requests 
It's like, oh, you think you're fucking too good to play our request now? We're coming over and asking for Brian Adams, but I'm, I'm a dickhead, am I? Because the, the week I won't play Brian Adams. So like, there was that on top of it, which I hadn't factored into it at that point. I just thought, no, these are strangers who hate me. How is this a metaphor for life? I'll tell you what it is. The next time I did a wedding, I spoke to my friend who's a DJ and told him about the previous wedding. And he said, you don't say no requests and you don't explain to them why you can't play it. You just say... Yeah, I'll do my best, and they'll leave you oh, alone. Said so that they're, they're, so they're drunk. They actually don't give a shit if you play their song or not. They don't care. All they want is to be heard and to chip in and tell the DJ how to do their job. So there's coming over. They're going to request a song. If you've got it, play it. They'll think you're amazing. If you haven't got it, say you'll do your best. They'll go away. They won't come back up and request it again. That won't happen. They'll accept it. And then I was like, yeah, too much of my life... <laughs> I'm constantly trying to do the very best by everybody. I've got to explain to them. If I can't do something, I've got to explain to them why and justify it. I want them to realise why I can't. I don't want to let anyone down. I want them all to like not feel mugged off and all this kind of stuff. And actually, some people, there's no winning with them. And so fobbing them off isn't the worst thing in the world. Like For me, I've really learned with some people now just to smile and nod and go, yeah, sure. That's Isn't so the worst thing in the right. world. It really reminds me, I, I heard Michaela Cole interviewed on a podcast recently and she mm. talked about taking the note about when someone is aggressive or criticises you, you don't have to react or defend yourself there in the moment. You just take the note and think about it and then decide whether it's worth your time or not. And I just mm. thought that was such great advice. It sounds quite similar. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, that's an excellent way of putting what I think was a 20 minute story for me, but like, yeah, absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Yeah. And I think there is that thing also just like, cause weirdly looking back, you almost do sound more shitty in that situation. You're going to make them feel better just saying, yeah, I'll do my best rather yeah. than going no. And even if you explain to them why they feel like it's being explained to them in a patronizing way or whatever, like, like they should have known that when it's not, you try to explain to them why, because you want them to know the only reason I'm not playing this is because I'm physically incapable of doing it. Like there's no way it's impossible. That's the only reason I'm not playing your request. Otherwise I would play it. No one's mugging you off here. But instead, yeah, like just every now and again in life, just tell certain people, yeah, sure. I'll do my best. Or whatever. I love and then, that. I love it. You'll never hear from them again. Your final failure is trying out new material on the ITV show Live at the Palladium, which I can imagine is like <laughs> quite an intense place to try out new material. What happened there? I think I was at a point, I don't know if this was in 2017 or 2016, but I was at a point where I'd done quite a lot of my stand-up on TV and I was getting ready to film these specials. I don't think Netflix had picked them up yet, but I had it in my head I was going to film basically everything I've ever done and release it. And that was my next goal. Mm. And then I was offered live at the Palladium. And I think it is, you know, to be vulgar, but I think it's one of those situations where the money was too good to say no to it. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe the money was awful. And I just, I, I just wanted to play the Palladium. I think that was a big factor in yeah. it as well. I said, yes, because it was stand-up as well. I think at the time, if I was offered to do stand-up on anything, I was just going to say yes, because there's actually not, loads of opportunities for stand-up comedians to do stand-up on TV. A lot of the time we're on panels or something like that. And so it was great. I get to do stand-up, so I'll say yes to that. And at the time, I mean, it might have been 2017, actually, in which case I'm annoyed that I didn't put this story in the book. At the time, I feel I was tired of doing old stuff and I was more into doing new material. 
And I don't think I respected the program enough either. I don't think I respected the show enough for some reason. I just thought, I'll be fine. I've done this routine about squash a couple of times and it worked. I'm going to be more engaged with the room and enjoy myself more if I do this routine. This is the routine that currently I'm the most excited about in my set. So I'm just going to go on and do it, even though I've only done it twice before. I got there and the bill was like, Bradley Walsh is hosting it. There's an improv group called The Noise Next Door doing a set when they get suggestions from the audience and do improvisation. And there's like the cast of School of Rock are doing one of the songs from their West End musical and stuff like that. It's a real variety show. There might have been a band on as well. And the vibe is very ITV. I'm going to say Brexity. So the audience <laughs> is, they would much rather quite listen catering. to... Yeah, in a way, yeah. They'd much rather listen to the songs from School of Rock. Like Joe Pasquale was in the audience as well, going around with a roving microphone. They'd much rather that than have someone go on and try out a whimsical new routine about squash. Yeah. I'm just talking about how when you're a kid, your parents make squash for you. And then when you grow up, you get to make it yourself and how that's a sign of independence. And now eventually that would become a routine which worked quite well for me. At this point, it was a weak squash. And I was... <laughs> I was just playing to pretty much nothing. And the only people who were laughing were Jordan Banjo and his friends <laughs> who were sitting in the audience. Tim and two of his mates were enjoying it. Bless him, Jordan And I Banjo. kept on referring to... I, mean, I didn't know it was Jordan Banjo at the time. I hadn't heard of him because I, I watched... I don't know if he's X Factor, but he's got talent. Now I know Jordan and I've done a couple of shows with him and he's told me that that was him at that gig. I didn't know it was. I just kept on going, oh, thank God for you three guys. I kept on saying to them on stage, which you shouldn't say during a, a normal gig, let alone a TV recording, and keep going, oh, thank God these three are enjoying it. I'm really glad you're liking it. And I remember coming off and Bradley Walsh being in the wings and just smiling at me. But this smile that, like, almost, it was quite nice, a smile between comics of, like, that was shit. <laughs> like, probably, that was shit, but it's pretty funny how shit it went. And it did make me feel a bit better. And it, is this the most stupid question in the world? But is it actually live? So you're being recorded so, and it's being beamed into people's no, sitting rooms? No, luckily okay. not. It gets edited down. And if you're lucky, some of those ones, they plug laughter into it. Although I say if you're lucky, do you know what? It saves you the complete embarrassment when that happens but generally speaking and it's not the same on panel shows sometimes you do a panel show and the audience could be dead and mm. then it goes out and the audience at home love it and that's because the panel have enjoyed themselves and if you enjoy yourself within the panel it doesn't actually matter what the studio audience are doing because you are making each other laugh and it is fun and, it is, and it's, a, it's a good show stand up if you're doing badly in the room it rarely comes across well on tv at home even if they've plugged laughs in and made it fake, people can still be like, well, this hasn't got much energy to it. It's a bit flat. And it's because the comic is playing to nothing and their confidence is being eroded with each line. And so they're not going to give a good show, you know, unless they're completely bulletproof when it comes to their confidence, which some people are. Did you watch it back? No. Okay. It's one of the only things I've never watched back. There's a few things I've never watched back. There's that. There's at least one panel show appearance that I've never watched back. Maybe two, actually. No, there's two panel show appearances that I've never watched back. Occasionally you do something where you go, there is nothing to be gained from watching this back. I like to watch things back sometimes just to learn from it and be like, okay, I like that thing that I did. I don't like that thing that I did. And next time I have a better idea of how I come across. And then sometimes you just had a really good show 
when you did it and you you want to watch it back and pat yourself on the back and go oh great That's, i feel proud of myself i don't need to doubt myself next time i go on something i never watched that and i'm never going to i think someone would literally have to force me to watch it and create a format for some podcast or tv show where I, people have to watch their most embarrassing tv appearances i didn't go on twitter that night because i was like there's gonna be nothing good there for me there's no point doing that I knew it was objectively a bad performance and anyone who said it was, was correct. James, I've loved talking to you so much and we're really running out of time. So I want to ask you, because I know so many people who listen to this also rightly love your podcast, Off Menu. And in Off Menu, you interview people about their favourite foods. But instead of asking you what your favourite meal would be in your restaurant of dreams, served by the genie, I wonder what dish you would be if you were reincarnated as a dish what would James Acaster be well I've spoke about ice cream so much on things and I'm so obsessed with it and still am convinced it's the greatest it's still like the best food I think the best food group would be ice cream in my opinion and I've eaten so much of it in my life that I can't think of anything outside of that which I would justifiably be able to put myself as just because of like just how much of a factor it's been in my life. I think my, the main motivation in my life has always been, oh, at some point I'll get some ice cream. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'd probably have to be ice cream. And, I, and in terms of what flavour would be a yeah. difficult one to choose, I think if you just go with the classic flavours, I would either want to be mint chot chip or raspberry ripple because I, I think they're the more interesting classic flavors of ice cream also I, I just i think they're tastier and i know some people who hate mint ice cream those people are wrong if all that was available was the classics mm. and raspberry ripple is like on the very edge of the classics it's, the, it's, the very ex- it's a kind of wacky classic list. it's like yeah, an eccentric classic yeah it is but like i'd want to be one of them in terms of like all the ice cream i've ever had <laughs> then it gets difficult because then you're like if it's me represented as an ice cream i like ice cream that has a lot of stuff in it me too. Like, That's the like, only ice cream I can eat. Yeah, and I like salty ice cream. That I, I like salty and sweet ice cream that, that has like, if it's got salted peanut butter or salted caramel or salted fudge, pretzels, even potato chips in it. I say potato chips because it's only the American ice creams that put those in there. So, you know, if I say crisps, no ice cream has mm. crisps in it because Britain doesn't do that yet. That's the kind of stuff that I like. However... If I'm thinking about representing myself as an ice cream, I don't know if I think anyone who says, I'll be one of those ice creams, I've got a bit of everything in me. There's a, a load of stuff going on. It's really, uh, like, I it's a bit think, arrogant. It's a bit arrogant. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit arrogant. And I don't think I would really feel comfortable. So I think I think I would put myself as Raspberry Ripple. I would put myself on the, uh, where I've aimed for yeah. on the stand up comedy landscape is the wacky edge of the standards. You know, this is your mainstream ice creams, but right on the wacky edge of it is Raspberry Ripple. And Raspberry Ripple can pop up in a boring person's ice cream sundae, and it can also pop up in a wacky person's ice cream sundae. And I would like to be enjoyed by both. So, because that's what I've, I'm not saying I've achieved it in comedy, but what I've aimed for is being the Raspberry Ripple of comedy. So I'll take that. Well, as your dad famously tweeted once, He's not for everyone, but he works hard. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. That's a very raspberry uh, ripple classic ice cream you, comment. You were asking me why I doubt myself so much? <laughs> oh, James, you've been an absolute delight. You are raspberry ripple. You are a cool classic traditionalist. You can aspire to having pretzels in you one day, but thank you so, <laughs> so much for coming thank on you. How to Fail. Thanks for having me. 
If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.